podcast episode today we're privileged to host professor Tamara Kuzelidze graduate from faculty of uh, Georgian philology at Ivan Ejelahishvili State University where she did postgraduate studies and was awarded degree of candidate of humanities for the thesis on symbolics of the early Georgian hagiography professor Kuzelidze worked as a researcher at Chota Rustaveli Institute of Georgian Literature taught Georgian language and literature at gymnasium continued further studies at St. Vladimir Seminary in New York at Anglican School and uh, Ripon College, uh, in England, UK, was enrolled as a doctoral student of Eastern Christian Studies at Oxford, was awarded a D-field for thesis, place, space, and writings of Maximus the Confessor, worked as an executive for Orthodox Theology at Secretariat of the Faith and Order Commission, World Council of Churches, Geneva in Switzerland, and was an ambassador of Georgia to the Holy See, um, as well as she published extensively on a number of, of, of topics. Today we'll be talking about her recent and forthcoming book, Ecclesiastical Boundaries and National Identity in the Orthodox Church. So it's it's a major topic given the context of the of the Russian invasion of, of, of Ukraine and also the whole dynamics and discrepancies between the legal and canonical borders. So we're very thrilled to have you today. More than welcome, Professor Ukterita. So our first question today will be. What is the key argument of, of the book? What's the kind of key takeaway that we can think of for the broader audience? And as you know, our audience is kind of a generalist audience. So what, what, what is the main takeaway from the book? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be your guest today, uh, first time. And um, uh, uh, yes, uh, it's uh, not so easy to uh, mention one uh, general topic, which will, which been um, covered extensively in the book because if we look at the title it says <clears throat> ecclesial, uh, uh, ecclesial, uh, ecclesial borders yes then national identity and the orthodox church so there are uh, several uh, topics which uh, are examined in order to um, get to know what is happening with the orthodox uh, uh, church uh, when it tries to be uh, an uh, agent or a participant in ecumenical encounters. And not only, uh, but also um, my uh, major interest was uh, uh, to see the uh, problematics uh, between the Orthodox, uh, which is then uh, directly taken into uh, ecumenical field. So inter-Orthodox uh, dynamics affect uh, uh, inter-Christian uh, dynamics for the Orthodox. And a very interesting question, of course, is given the context of now, many people argue that all oh, global orthodoxy is kind of silent uh, given the, the war. What, how, how does your book or findings of your book reflect on the global orthodoxy per se and its contemporary <clears throat> kind of responses to the global crisis that was caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, actually, both uh, key questions that you mentioned now in your um, question, global orthodoxy and uh, uh, 
uh, um, contemporary issues uh, are taken very seriously in this book because uh, it is not a, a book about one a church. It uh, covers. It tries to uh, tackle the issue of orthodoxy worldwide. Although it takes uh, three areas uh, as examples of contextualization of uh, orthodoxy today. So these are uh, Georgia. Uh, Russia and Ukraine. And so the um, uh, interesting dynamic between these three places, uh, which are uh, all based on same principles and try to play out the same uh, sort of structure of being the church, but how they differ and how um, uh, different uh, emphasis they make on their, uh, in their ecclesiological understanding of being the church is uh, probably the most interesting part of this uh, research and, and very important question which is often is, is raised in discussion is this whole discrepancy between canonical and legal can you help us to understand what's the what's the notion of canonical territory in, in an orthodox theology and also maybe reflect briefly on the territory per se how do churches understand territory oh, it's a very uh, interesting and uh, complex question and uh, I start exactly from there you know, geographic borders, uh, which were <clears throat> uh, uh, actually the most important uh, um, uh, characteristic for characterization of uh, uh, local churches in Eastern Roman Empire. So uh, how uh, then these uh, local churches developed into autocephalous churches, and then, I mean, autocephalous as such did not come into existence for some time, but still, I mean, the uh, churches which we have now, territorial churches, which are autocephalous churches, um, bring, uh, or uh, rather, uh, inherited into their um, ecclesiology something uh, which has been taken uh, uh, as uh, something unchangeable, uh, perhaps, but also um, they never try to reflect on this uh, legacy. Uh, so what was uh, territoriality in the Eastern Roman Empire uh, as a um, mark of this autonomy that the churches uh, had uh, later became a, a stumbling block because uh, now we live in a very different um, world from the 4th century or whatever, the first millennium. Uh, and uh, um, autocephaly still applies as one of the major characteristics of uh, Orthodox Church. Uh, it's sometimes we uh, we have uh, problems with it on both sides actually. On the one hand, when we speak about canonicity, yes, canonical uh, territories are yes, uh, autocephalous churches have their canonical territories, yes, like like Georgian Church. Uh, uh, Georgian territory, the, I mean, today it's, uh, uh, yeah, the, today's Georgia, it canonically belongs uh, to the Orthodox Church of Georgia, but we know that there are many other churches and uh, they are uh, uh, entirely, um, uh, I mean, um, it's natural that they are here because they uh, came here historically, they started uh, to be here, but uh, this, <clears throat> um, problem between the uh, canonicity and legality, um, you know, it, it sounds like it is problematic, but in fact it's not if we 
I mean the church, Orthodox Church uh, really understands and uh, reflects on what does it mean today to live in a uh, secular world. So there, there are many uh, layers of uh, historicity to be taken into account in order to make a sharp distinction or to understand it uh, clearly what it means to be a part of the canonical church and also legally to be uh, a citizen of this or another country, so state. So that's not as uh, complex as it may sound, but um, it needs uh, um, some uh, uh, special reflection on the part of the church, Orthodox Church. This kind of brings also the conversation about the whole engagement of Orthodox churches in, in geopolitics. So what's your take? Why do churches participate in geopolitics if, they, if you think they do? And what is the nature of their involvement? Yeah, because uh, it goes so close with the idea of nationality, right? This national um, identity uh, pushes somehow uh, the church, even you know, without if the, if they don't want it, but you know, definitely they want it, to be a national church, right? For instance, in Georgia, uh, if we take the Georgian example, there were periods where the Orthodox Church historically really played important role in uh, preserving in. Uh, uh, the national identity in uh, in contributing to the uh, creation of Georgian nation, yes, but not only it's not only the church, but you know one of the components of uh, this uh, um, process. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as soon as uh, um, this national identity becomes, uh, you know the. Um, uh, becomes uh, a foundation for um, uh, political power, you know, it, it, when it is used as a political leverage, then it is uh, quite uh, problematic. For instance, Ukrainian example, uh, that's what I discuss in my book. Um, when, um, uh, at the moment, you know, I, I think that the way uh, autocephaly functions today in um, Today, I mean, in our churches is problematic because uh, autocephaly cannot be uh, uh, taken uh, from generation to generation, from centuries to centuries, without understanding what it means uh, in that period of time, in that period of history. So today, what uh, and how autocephaly should be function functioning, it should be uh, reflected by the whole body of the church, not only... Uh, locally by local churches, but also by the Orthodox Church as a whole, as a body of Christ. At the same time, uh, we see that um, autocephaly can be uh, taken as a, a, a negative sort of aspect of the church life when it tries to uh, take uh, orthodoxy into a uh, very nationalistic and political direction, but on the other hand, it can be also uh, a positive uh, thing. For instance, like it was uh, uh, in the battle uh, for independence in the Ukrainian case, you know. I, uh, so I want to say that uh, I think autocephaly is not an um, 
updated sort of or uh, fully um, uh, understandable and uh, um, uh, adequate uh, aspect of the um, ecclesiology, orthodox ecclesiology today, but because it exists, because it is there and all churches function according uh, to the historic um, autocephaly, uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine as an independent sovereign uh, state, um, wants to have uh, independent or self-governing autocephalous Ukrainian church, which is a norm, normal thing. Yeah, the abnormality, in my view, is to equate um, statehood with uh, one church, which uh, uh, autocephaly. Uh, provides somehow to all churches, to Orthodox churches, you know, traditional Orthodox churches. They are national churches. Which is kind of a, a philatic thing, isn't it? I mean, it, to an extent, it's, it's not philatism. Uh, it's yeah. not always, uh, you know, I, I don't consider it uh, entirely philatistic because there are certain things, as I already mentioned, which um, should be cherished uh, that the Orthodox mm. Church did historically, but it should not be taken to the uh, to its um, uh, um, you know to its uh, uh, it shouldn't be taken to uh, for granted that it is so today. So that's what I mean. You know, it's okay that uh, autocephaly. Uh, played a special role uh, in the first millennium or you know in the Middle Ages, but today autocephaly has another role, and this should be considered against the uh, background of uh, societies and states we live in. Unfortunately, it is not done. Why so? Well, you know, because we we never had the opportunity. The churches or the Orthodox Church has never had an opportunity to. Uh, think together. I mean, even the Crete meeting uh, did not allow this with the minimum of program that it provided. It was not possible. And it's the conflict of interests gradually. Yeah, kind of gradually, that's what I mean. Yes, gradually, the uh, problem is that when autocephaly functions in that way, we um, in a negative way, uh, it, we uh, get uh, this national uh, churches. Uh, uh, um, uh, occupied uh, by national interests, and they are, uh, yeah, national interests which they want to um, extend to other churches, to other states, like the Russian church does, yes, the Church of Russia does. Uh, but in the Ukrainian case, as I said, you know, it is national interest, but on the other hand, because it is the, the norm, it's a rule, you know, they use this to um, uh, bring or to use it for their uh, um, independence, to prove their, you know, to add something to the sovereignty. Mm. I wonder <clears throat> what's the theological root of the civilizational ideologies, this kind of Christian civilizationism, which is very often under underlining the idea of Russian world, which is again. The, the discourse, or as I discuss in my book, kind of a hybrid of an idea, ideology, and a project which Kremlin uses for justifying its foreign policy and kind of hegemony, what it's called, it's near abroad. I wonder what sort of theological root, if at all any, does this civilization ideology has? Well, uh, theologically, uh, uh, I don't think theologically there is anything, but, you know, ecclesially and ecclesiologically there was this... Uh, 
historic um, understanding of Sinfonia that the church and the um, emperor uh, made uh, decisions uh, uh, very often together. Sometimes they contradicted one another, but in general, <clears throat> the church and state uh, um, uh, complemented each other. So that, that was the, uh, that is the root of this. Uh, yeah, but, but I mean, today to speak about this in democratic societies that the church and uh, state uh, complement each other, it's a bit a uh, contradiction in terms, you know, that we, all um, agents of a, of a society, democratic society, are independent agents. They, they cannot... Uh, uh, they all serve the, uh, in their own capacity the state, but they they cannot uh, uh, serve the governments. So you know that's that's a difference which uh, is a, is not the, uh, as subtle as it sounds. If you understand what is a democratic society and how secular um, states function. That's in theory, but in practice we learn that churches are involved in, in kind of <coughs> policy influence and they're really impacting geopolitics as well. Yeah, because we are, uh, I mean, the countries that you have in uh, mind uh, have not reached that uh, level. You know, we have uh, de juris perhaps, but not de facto um, uh, secular society. Or sec I mean, certainly <coughs> there are certain things which are... Uh, in Georgia um, at large is secular. You can't say that it's not a secular country, but you know again, what does it mean? And then it is not one level of secularity, you know. And uh, uh, very often we see, as you said, that uh, yeah, the church uh, uh, is involved in many uh, political decisions, uh, and the church. Uh, I'm talking about the. Georgian example now, church uh, provides to a uh, huge electorate to, so it, it's a huge political interest uh, because they have so many people who listen to them, um, to the church. And um, therefore, yeah, therefore it's there, you know, that uh, the church fits uh, <clears throat> its own interests by um, feeding the interests of politics. Yeah, can you guide us through? <coughs> can you Sorry. guide us through your book? <coughs> I uh, the how the structure of the book, but also some kind of uh, so if if you may put me spoiler alert for those who are interested, of course, to, to buy it. But I wonder if you can guide us through um, a little bit of or give us the gist of the argument. And by the way, a quote for Ron Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury: "A vital book for understanding the current challenges in the Eastern Christian world." He says about the book. So I wonder if you can guide us about. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> you. Uh, if 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 you just um, give us the gist of the argument as well as, as as kind of a broader structure of the book. Okay. So the first of all, I want to say that main thing which uh, um, contributed to uh, my uh, you know the, to to this work uh, is my experience. Uh, Experience as Christian, experience as theologian, you know, that I was brought up in Christian family under Soviet regime, then studying hagiography again uh, in the Soviet times. Then I studied in uh, St. Vladimir's in Oxford under Bishop Callistos Ware, so that was a huge experience. Then uh, um, uh, most of all working in uh, Geneva, 
because uh, when I worked as Orthodox theologian in ecumenical um, uh, you know, institution, uh, it meant that I was in uh, actively collaborating with the uh, clergy and bishops and the clerics of all uh, traditions. And uh, as a woman theologian, you don't have this opportunity, you know. So uh, that was a very, very interesting experience and probably the most formative for, uh, for my professional background, but also uh, most important for the book which I wrote. And then certainly this uh, four and a half years in uh, Vatican were very also important uh, part of my experience as theologian. You mean ambassadorial? Ambassadorial, yeah. yes, I was ambassador, but, you know, I mean, because I was theologian, I could not uh, become just mm. an ambassador. I was a theologian ambassador. <clears throat> so, and then, um, you know, um, I was uh, struck by the, uh, while working in Geneva, I was struck by the uh, inability of the Orthodox to express themselves uh, freely or um, uh, not to be able uh, to uh, uh, join others in decisions. And this was something which was, uh, you know, uh, I was observing it all the time, that Orthodox always had to, uh, whatever, I mean, uh, involve, however they were involved in the discussion, uh, wouldn't matter, every time they would end up by going back to their uh, sort of this statement that Orthodox Church is the one Holy Catholic Church that does not, in fact, recognize other uh, Christians uh, as churches. You know, not always maybe saying these words, but you know, content was this. And I, I, I was uh, very interested by because uh, you cannot uh, deny that there was enthusiasm on the part of the Orthodox when they. Um, joined the ecumenical movement. You know, in the beginning of the 20th century, there were these um, letters coming from the ecumenical patriarch, Kate and the ecumenical patriarch, uh, uh, and uh, you know, the, there was this encouragement to all Christians to uh, be together, to uh, you know, do things together as Christians. But um, but then Orthodox, uh, when it gets to uh, doing things, uh, I mean, uh, they have problems. For instance, uh, uh, the most recent and uh, absolutely uh, astonishing is the inability of the Orthodox to uh, say Lord's Prayer together with, I mean, I don't mean all Orthodox, but you know, very often in uh, ecumenical, maybe the Georgians, for sure, the Georgians don't say any prayer with others, that's for sure. Um, but also other Orthodox find it uh, problematic to... Uh, and you cannot stay in ecumenical movement unless you are uh, at least able to say Lord's Prayer together. You know, it's, uh, it's a bit um, disappointing. Mm. to say the least, yeah. So uh, this was my uh, uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, trigger that why. So then I started thinking about these things and then two major events, that's what I write in the introduction, gave uh, uh, impulse, sort of uh, a strong impulse. This was that um, the Great and Holy Council of Crete in 2016, which, you know, uh, four churches 
tried to make it an event. You Which know? took ages to organize in the yeah, first place. Yeah, it was uh, more than 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. 50 years to organize. But you know, these 50 years will also should be... This is one thing to say, but imagine during these 50 years, the churches of the Soviet Union could not participate freely. I mean, they were part of the ecumenical movement, we know this, but it was not the same, sort of, they didn't have capacity, they didn't have uh, freedom or anything to participate freely in this discussion. So, uh, participation of uh, the Orthodox from the Soviet Union in the ecumenical movement was a completely different thing, and even though they attended these meetings, their presence would mean nothing, you know, theologically, would not, they would not contribute to this meeting. Mm. So on the one hand, we say that it's 50 years behind this preparation, but on the other hand, you know, it's, I mean, it's not exactly 50 years, although before Crete, all uh, heads of Orthodox churches met a couple of times and they agreed that they would. So the meeting should have gone, uh, should have happened, but... Uh, because of the um, threat that some important questions uh, would be uh, uh, raised, uh, the, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church didn't want it, so they, I mean, uh, yes, it's clear that the Russian Orthodox Church and a couple of its satellite churches did not... Uh, Including the Georgian Church. Yeah, yeah, sure, the Georgian Church is one of yeah. its satellite churches. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes... Uh, so this was one event, uh, you know, I was very uh, much looking forward to this, uh, uh, to the Crete meeting, you know, I even um, was invited as a consultant, but I, because I was ambassador at the time, I, I couldn't accept it, yeah, as, uh, as an official position, and then I couldn't justify just going there as a tourists. So anyway, and then another thing was granting Thomas to uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine was very important. So these two major events that really, um, after this, this book sort of emerged by itself somehow, you know, that ever, uh, all my thoughts were there in order to uh, uh, justify my thoughts through this event, sort of, and then, yes. So it's a kind, if I may summarize, it's a s sort of the genealogy of global orthodoxy, if you will. That's, mm. the, the, that's the... Yeah, global orthodoxy. I speak about global orthodoxy, and I make a distinction. It is very uh, much uh, in the air now, uh, in academic circles also, to speak about the orthodoxy. I try to show that, yes, sure, we speak about the orthodoxy because we all come from the same roots, but at the same time, they are very different, you know. You can, the histories are very different. I mean, how can you compare Georgia, Russia, and Ukraine? I mean, we all come with different stories, with different backgrounds and different aspirations. Today, we uh, stand closer to Ukraine because we all uh, both experience this post-Soviet past and we try to be sovereign in the shadow of Russia. So that's, uh, yeah. And ecclesiastical, it's interesting in the, um, in, in the title, ecclesiastical boundaries. Yes. You don't, you don't mention either borders or you're no, careful with I, those words. Yeah, no, I distinguish these are, and which will be difficult to say probably in Georgian, I, I already think about it. Because borders I call geographic borders and boundaries are more social boundaries, which is a problem in the Orthodox Church, you know. That's what I was trying to explain, that if we... 
could, um, I mean we, I mean the Church, if the Orthodox Church could uh, have a clear understanding of the boundaries that uh, we live within today, you know, in secular societies, then it would function uh, uh, better, I think. Are, are boundaries a bigger deal for Orthodoxy than borders? The League of Borders? Uh, well, it depends which church you are talking about. Um, for, okay. Russia, <laughs> for Russia, they are both problematic because Russia is uh, imperial um, uh, Russia and it wants to make uh, uh, subordinate to all uh, uh, neighboring territories and uh, cultures, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, uh, Georgian is a very different, they know, I mean, we are very different in, with language and uh, uh, culture, and uh, this is an older church, but, uh, and, okay, they, uh, sometimes you see that they uh, acknowledge that uh, what Tsarist Russia did uh, was not the right thing, abolishing autocephaly, although, you know, it was the same, Autocephaly, but although uh, in Russia at that time they didn't have patriarchs, so it was also uh, Georgia should have thought about it that you know Russia would not allow to have patriarch and autocephaly uh, in Georgia. But anyway, uh, so what they did with the uh, Church of Georgia during the Tsarist time is uh, you come across this idea that okay, it was not the right thing. Also, this Council of Moscow, 1917, uh, 18 Council also raised this question about uh, what Russia did wrong in Georgia. But still they have uh, this uh, aspiration to influence Georgia through the church and they do it. You know, they use different methods today. They don't uh, try to russify by, uh, for instance, abolishing Georgian language. That would not be possible, but li like they did in the Tsarist times. But there are other means, yeah. I, I wonder if, if you, in what, in what way you relate and how would you reflect to this thesis that Russian state is using the church as much as Russian church is using the state? Well, uh, I think the situation is such that the uh, uh, Russian state is too uh, strong and powerful to, I mean, now that we see that Russia is not really that powerful, which is a great uh, news, I think, <laughs> but still, um, I think um, in Russia the church, the Orthodox Church, is trying to be helpful, you know, uh, this Russian world, Ruski Mir, and uh, all this was uh, really an uh, attempt on the part of the um, uh, Russian Orthodox Church to be fully involved into uh, Russian geopolitics. Yeah, so the church also um, agrees with what uh, politically at the moment Putin's uh, regime uh, tries to do that, you know, uh, at least, I mean, now probably they are in today, they, they have other thoughts, maybe, perhaps, and they have other problems. But, you know, before the war, uh, Russian Orthodox Church definitely um, agreed fully with the um, uh, political uh, aspirations of uh, Russian uh, state, which means that they uh, believed in uh, extending uh, its uh, influence, ecclesial influence, beyond uh, the borders of the uh, Russian state. 
Um, how much of an actor or how do you recognize the agency of Orthodox churches in an international affairs? How much actorness is there? Or it's ingrained being instrumentalized and be part of the kind of political power and basically be used all the time? Or is there an actorness itself? Or there is more like symphonia uh, you mean, you know, oh, there, there is a big difference now what you're asking. Um, big churches, for instance, uh, uh, Russian Orthodox Church, you know, either maybe or Romanian too, I don't know, I, I shouldn't be uh, mentioning this, but Russian Orthodox Church has, as a local church, uh, um, as one body has uh, its own dialogues, for instance, with other churches, for instance, with Lutherans. They have uh, this, I know. But uh, when um, Orthodox Church participates in uh, uh, ecumenical encounters, whether bilateral or multilateral, they go as one church. See? For instance, when there is a, a Roman Catholic Orthodox dialogue, or representatives of all Orthodox churches go as one group. Mm -hmm. So they, okay. yeah, we, it should be like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if if we agree with our ecclesiology, it should be like if. this. Yeah. yeah, but we don't agree. Therefore, this encounter is always uh, um, um, problematic and almost a joke because uh, where they come to uh, discuss things with. Uh, a church which is not part of their church and they cannot agree with one another in order to uh, start a serious conversation with others so uh, this you know i i have uh, all, many friends on both sides of this uh, dialogues normally so i have these jokes from other side that also those come together and then they start quarreling because they don't know each other they don't want to know each other they want to present their own interests in uh, front of everything, so that's their priority, and then you know. Then yeah, we meet with 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 a great friend, a colleague Kirill Hoveron, we discussed in one of the episodes this kind of anomaly of Orthodox churches being involved in the war in a way, and this war happened between two Orthodox churches, like Georgia. Um, not Orthodox churches, but two Orthodox predominantly yeah, dominated states: yeah. Georgia, Russia, um, Ukraine, Russia. So how does it make sense in a way, if it does at all, ecclesiologically, to relate, to how churches relate to these wars? How do they respond to these wars and how they explain these wars? And is it possible to explain the war when two Orthodox churches obviously kind of are a big part of their national habitus, if you will? Well, in a way now, uh, Georgia and uh, Ukraine are in a, I mean, in inverted commas, better position because Russia is an aggressor. And whatever uh, the Georgian church says or Ukraine, churches in Ukraine say uh, in defense of themselves, uh, they are right because it's an aggression. Uh, but, uh, I mean, for instance, uh, I've written on this, uh, the behavior of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church in 2008 during the war was amazing. You know, the Kirill, who was the head of the external relations, uh, Department of External Relations at the time, uh, said that, uh, on television, he said that our country was uh, um, attacked, or you know, I mean, this is just crazy. Well, I mean, it's absolutely uh, out of the uh, possibilities how a church may speak about uh, invasion. So, our country, mean Russia, being attacked. 
Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. He said that our country, Russia, has been attacked by Georgia. Okay. Yeah, I mean, oh, in 2008? In 2008, okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, 2008. And even now, uh, as we know, I mean, he never says war, and uh, now he doesn't speak even, I mean, I don't hear him speaking this lately, but in the beginning he was uh, saying about the um, uh, special operation and, you know, uh, and other things. So... Uh, the worst thing is that, you know, uh, for me, very upsetting is that uh, before um, uh, Mariupol and Bucha, I think uh, um, most people and most churches in the world still wanted to um, understand uh, Russian Orthodox Church, you know, to find excuses for the Russian Church. Well, this is very upsetting, honestly, but today it will be very difficult to... Uh, you know, find any excuse for uh, their um, uh, involvement or agreement with the uh, Putin's regime. Speaking of uh, agreements, as, as, as I know, you're a staunch uh, advocate of ecumenism, and I wonder what's the future of ecumenism, given the, the situation and all unfolding events that we've discussed. Yeah, not very bright future for ecumenism at the moment on the part of... Uh, the Orthodox, because we you know we we, uh, I think pandemic was very useful for Orthodox situation, <clears throat> because after Crete, um, it it will be very difficult to come together for all of us. You know, there's uh, especially after Thomas uh, given uh, by Patriarch Bartholomew to the Orthodox Church of Ukraine and some churches very couple of, but still are uh, supporting this, and the Russian Orthodox Church uh, definitely, uh, you know, uh, instrumentalizes this situation to say that, you know, they are all against them. So that's, that's always what the Russians are uh, happy to uh, claim. The that, yeah, they, yeah, they are them. victims of uh, the West, they are victims of... Uh, Ecumenical patriarchate, I don't know, you know, all sorts of victimization against mm. uh, Russia, which is half of the world if you look at the map, you know. Mm. By the way, Putin is a fanboy of Ivan Ilin, who is uh, kind yes. of the ideologist of this victimhood mentality, who himself was actually admirer of Adolf Hitler and Mussolini, in case you're interested in his sort of fascist uh, uh, theology or uh, ideology. Um, and the last thing is that, is there a way out uh, for the Russian Orthodox Church uh, from the situation which it actually emerged to be in, uh, whether willingly or not, has been kind of a legitimator of this war? Is there a solution that it finds its moral face, face somehow saving its face, or, or things are over for Kirill? Uh, for Kirill, I think everything is over. I, I think if he has so much resources in himself to really uh, change, convert, well, I would be very <laughs> surprised, but I don't know. Well, you know, uh, let's think that it's possible. But uh, um, you know what? I think uh, a Russian Orthodox Church, uh, uh, like the Russian state, must... Uh, uh, will be given a good opportunity now to change, really. I mean, all churches, all Orthodox churches should think very carefully about uh, their role in this uh, situation, you know, in pan-Orthodox uh, um, relations and also with regard to the war in Ukraine and how, how could the church support to this extent the war, you know. 
I mean, we know the reasons and uh, we can analyze the situation. But on the other hand, I mean, it is uh, odd that w- there is so much, uh, um, uh, you know, so much um, uh, material to uh, to uh, approve this war, you know, on the part of the Orthodox Church. And uh, there is a very good, um, I heard uh, recently, good, uh, uh, interesting interview by uh, Anne Applebaum. Uh, she speaks about uh, uh, Russian state, definitely, but, you know, the, the, uh, one of the arguments in her interview is that uh, Russia should give up being uh, uh, empire and uh, be a normal state, you know, and then perhaps they they will uh, calm down and uh, live peacefully and ha- uh, happier, uh, and also give a, ha- a happy life to their neighbors. I think the same is true about the Russian Orthodox. Why they cannot stick to themselves and why they cannot uh, live their own life instead of interfering into other people's lives, and why they cannot understand that Ukraine is a sovereign uh, state and they cannot uh, control uh, Ukraine, either state or uh, churches in Ukraine. And uh, if they are so much uh, upset about um, uh, losing their possessions, let them take their possessions, you know, let the, the people give them what belongs to them, what they paid for. Because always, even in the Tsarist times, when Benishevich came to Georgia, I mean, he was a great figure in Russian Orthodox Church, but he came to Georgia and he said, you know, his claim was that uh, how can... uh, um, It is difficult to, um, after Georgia um, announced or uh, restored autocephaly in 1917, you know, Benishevich was sent uh, from Moscow, and he said, but there are so many possessions that uh, Russian Orthodox Church uh, uh, left in Georgia. What shall we do? I mean, they, they took so many things because they came here as aggressors, I mean, uh, colonizers. So let them leave something or let them take whatever they you know, think belongs to them. Well, it's a big issue. But... Um, there is always a hope for change, no? I, we're Christians, we should believe in this. Yeah, and on this note, let's end this wonderful interview. And thank you so much for a great, uh, great talk and very enlightening conversation. Ecclesiological Boundaries and National Identity in Orthodox uh, Church, uh, but book forthcoming by Notre Dame University Press. And uh, yeah, uh, let the audience join us with a round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.